My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, just before I begin with this episode, just a couple of things. Um, thank you all very much for the nice emails I had in about the show coming back um, from that kind of hiatus that I've been on. It's always nice to kind of hear people um, pleased that I've returned. I have a few kind of questions which people have asked me. Um, number one, is the uh, the Bond uh, retrospective going to carry on? It is going to be carrying on. I will notify you when the next episode's up. I'm hoping to um, record it quite quickly. There is going to be another retrospective starting up as well to run alongside the bomb ones i will give more details of that as it comes in um a couple of people as well ever so kindly um have once again offered to donate to the show if that was at all possible and um as i as i've you know, wrote back and thanked those people for their kind offers but i don't take um donations to the show it doesn't cost it only costs about five pounds a month to put on so they really are it's not a kind of a financial burden on me or two at all and you know just to clarify it's so kind of people to um to offer that it's always very flattering i think for, for me i find it very flattering when people offer but there really is no need and, and you know, just kind of your continued support is, is payment enough so i'm going to get right on with this episode um today i'm going to be talking about the recent blu-ray blu-ray re-release of um steven spielberg's duel um mad max fury road and i'm going to kick things off with a look at thomas winterberg's far from the madding crowd Come all you fair and tender girls That flourish in your prime Beware, beware, keep your garden fair Let no man steal your time seen yourself through a man's eyes. It's like not being able to think. I want very much to protect you for the rest of your life. I'm not going to tell stories just to please you. You can be sure of that. For when your time it is past and gone, you'll woman to thy wedded wife. How my love Will thou love her, comfort her, honour and keep her? So long as ye both shall live. How my love slighted me. Now, I was lucky enough to go to a school where we had amazing teachers and they managed to make learning incredibly fun and our teachers would do things that have kind of like one man plays or kind of trips out but we seemed to kind of really enjoy the texts that we got into and I think it's kind of traditional that when you kind of go to school a lot of the times you kind of you, you, you're made to read books that you don't really have much interest in and you can't really get into but I, what I found with our kind of teachers that they made the kind of novels that we were kind of digging into things that we would have absolutely no kind of um desire to go to ourselves things like kind of wuthering heights and they would kind of make them incredibly cinematic in our imaginations and one of the books that we covered was far from the madding crowd and i seem to remember uh, when we watched the kind of the john Schlesinger version of it as a kind of companion to the lessons that we were having it was strange because uh, we, we had had such a kind of vivid 
um, images put into our heads that I remember thinking were I to adapt the novel it would look somewhat like the film that we were shown and it's always kind of sparked a thing on me where I've always been interested in adaptions and especially kind of British literary classics like Far From Man and Crowd. So when I heard that uh, director Thomas Vinterberg was having a stab at bringing it to the screen, I was actually really excited for this project. And the kind of, the, I suppose the the British literary adaption is often the, the kind of the, the realm of the BBC miniseries. And often I sometimes feel that this is the best way to really kind of get to the nuances of a text. And... Of course, I think you, ha you have to kind of really look at kind of the whole adaption process anyway, because you know, th there is room for cinema adaptions. And m my kind of guiding principle is not to be kind of too sniffy or precious about the source material. Take, for example, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's a great book, a great miniseries, and it's also a great film. And all are very different and I think very worthy in their own right. Now, it pains me when people simply dismissed... Um, a film based on what has been sacrificed or changed from the original text and indeed for me it's kind of part of the fun you know how how would you go into adapting a book you know how would i do it does it does it you know does it work first and foremost as a film you know it can deviate as much as you want but what i want is a really a kind of a cinematic experience and i you know i i, I really kind of emphasize the word a cinematic experience i'm not interested in having someone read the book to me on screen and adaption is a fine art and i i, I listen to a lot of audiobooks and one of the things whilst I'm doing this is that I kind of visualize as much as I can the novel in my head and I find it's actually a really good way of completely um, zoning out in the morning especially kind of things on the train to work where you know I can just kind of find my little part part of the train and listen to an audiobook and kind of piece it piece it together in my head and um, I find it to be a really kind of relaxing and therapeutic exercise and I also think it's an incredibly good one you know for someone like myself I work in kind of a visual you know my job involves kind of visuals and photography and filmmaking so I find it a really interesting exercise to do this and it's kind of interesting to me because you know if you sell millions of novels in the modern era it is given that a film is going to be made I mean the Da Vinci Code which was a book that I actually despised and a film that I positively detested um it's still made something in the region of 750 million dollars and it appeared to be liked by no no one yet it was a win-win for all concerned you know 50 shades of gray was was going to make millions of regard anything now i don't know if the book's any good i don't know if the film is any good um i'm relying being informed by people who do like the uh, the novels that the this film wasn't much cop um you know and i will get to it one day I, again I, I don't have a kind of sniffy attitude to these types of things if people want to go and enjoy 50 shades of gray so be it i mean yeah, you know they don't, they don't you don't have to read war and peace all the time to kind of prove your kind of literary credentials as it were so now far from running crowd um re represents something of a breath of fresh air for me really because it was you know it's a book that i really love and it stars the excellent carrie, carrie mulligan and is directed by a slightly unhinged danish man so really what more could i possibly ask for and once i'd kind of navigated the screaming hordes of friday night film goers at manchester's print works um, which, for those of you who don't know, the Primworks are one of those kind of purpose-built funplex things um, full of chain bars and morons drinking till they either pass out in their own puke or have a fight with their best mate, Dave. I kind of settled into the sparsely populated cinema while I was easily the youngest person in there by a good hundred years. And I, I think I was in the perfect mood for the film, and I'm pleased to say that it was a case of cinematic love at first sight. Now, 
Now, I've spoken before about my buy-in with films, whereby it's that period where normally about the first five to ten minutes where I decide that I, whether I'm going to like a film or not. And with Far From Bending Crowd, it seemed to happen straight away. And I think it was a strange kind of surge of patriotism in me, but sometimes I kind of forget how beautiful England can look. And Hardy's World takes place in a kind of fantasy English of English-sounding counties that don't actually exist in a kind of pre-industrial world that is being destroyed by the trappings of modernism. It's a very romantic, if very flawed, view of a country, and I think Hardy totally understood the world in which his protagonists existed, and they seem to be a little bit kind of too ahead of their times and trapped by the constraints of the society they live in. And Far From Crown is essentially a story about a young woman called Bastija Everdeen, played by Carrie Monaghan, and three men, all of whom vie for her affections in a variety of different ways. First up we have Gabriel Oak, a shepherd who is on the up in many ways. He has his own flock and a farm, and instantly, after he meets Bathsheba, he asks for her hand in marriage. Um, Take it aback, she is flattered yet turns him down and fortuitously inherits a vast estate and herself kind of moves up the social scale of things rather quickly and Gable suffers a disaster of his own when his entire flock is wiped out in an accident and luckily Bathsheba is able to employ him on her estate and the pair's friendship begins to blossom. Gabriel as well, by the way, was played by the excellent Matthias um, Schoenartz, who uh, I, I first kind of got to know in Rust and Bone, which um, definitely one of my favourite films of the past few years. But he, he's absolutely excellent. He, he, his English accent is is completely flawless. But also um, kind of competing for Bathsheba's affection is neighbour William Baldwood, played by Michael Sheen, who is in his 40s and unmarried. And Baldwood develops a kind of infatuation with Bathsheba and politely asks for a hand in marriage after she sends him a valentine's card as a kind of ill-judged joke. Enter into this the Sergeant Frank Troy, played by Tom Sturridge. Young and brash, he soon wins over Bathsheba and Gable does his best to dissuade her, but she's having none of it and marries Francis despite the fact that he's clearly in love with somebody else. He also has a bit of a gambling issue and threatens to destroy the farm with his constant betting on fighting and things like that now produced by dni films and the bbc i think this film worked for me on three levels firstly it just has the right balance between classy costume drama tropes that root in a kind of prestige british production that we've seen the likes of kind of things with pride and prejudice and secondly a very modern jolt in the arm courtesy of the casting choices and performances thirdly i think the inspired choice of vince berger's director who keeps the running time in a very multiplex friendly two hours and I, I kind of say the kind of the modern Chotian because when Gabriel asks Bathsheba to marry him, which takes place within, I think, about the first five minutes of the film, it is absolutely ridiculous that he's, he, that he's doing this. He, you, know, you sort of wonder, you know, where, where, where's all this coming from? And what I found is that Bathsheba is kind of, and the way Carrie Mulligan plays is that she has a very kind of contemporary edge to her, yet the film is set in a bygone age. So when obviously... You know, he asks marriage. Of course, it's ridiculous. We we recognise it as being ridiculous based on how we interact in the modern world. I mean, imagine that if you met someone a couple of times and they suddenly turn around and said, "Oh, I, I you know, I can, I, I want to marry you, and I can, I can do these wonderful things." For you. Of course, you'd look at them and go, "What on earth are you talking about?" You might be very flattered, and I think Mulligan displays that really well and brilliantly, in fact, actually. And she's kind of. It's interesting because none of the men in the film have a particularly healthy attitude. 
toward her. Gable definitely gets there. I think he kind of starts at the bottom and works his way up, certainly. But but Boulderworth is, is, is this kind of, I, I guess, a kind of a very bizarre kind of infatuation. You have Troy, who is more kind of represents, I think, a more kind of sexual, more dangerous side. But Bathsheba is in a male-dominated world, and... The scenes of a kind of at the trading hall show how foreign she is. She, people don't take her seriously. They kind of they don't really know quite what to make of her. And Mulligan injects a kind of zeal and zest into character very quickly. What could have been kind of you know a really drawn out kind of woman v the world story, instead kind of makes you instantly gravitate towards her. And naturally, we want her to like Gabriel, but. Obviously, this offer of instant marriage is completely ridiculous. And I think what kind of Hardy is getting at in the novel is the fact that he's kind of criticising this kind of approach that men have of infatuation first and feeling second. And and I think it helped me kind of empathise with her character a lot more. You know, custom in the world she lives in dictates that you know a man should marry. And both Gabriel and Boulder would talk of what they can offer in terms of monetary value. And the security it brings. I mean, a promise of piano. Um, both of them make reference to this, and I think it's kind of designed to elicit whoops of joy in her. And this, it's clearly kind of seen as a status symbol, but it obviously really kind of clacks. Uh, sorry, lacks a very clear value to her, which is excitement. And although Gabriel and Boldwood, you know, think this kind of tokenistic gesture will win her over, it's clearly what she doesn't want. And I recently read a rather brilliant article about four men about sex written by a woman in which this the writer really humorously kind of detailed how she doesn't want to be she didn't want to be wrapped in cotton wool and in her words penetrated by a wuss what she actually wanted was to be ravaged by someone who she described um rather amusingly as uh, lusty mchardon but i think it gave a kind of an impression it was certainly an insight into the fact that I perhaps you know a lot of men think that women want to be kind of wrapped up in cotton wool and kind of treated in a certain way, which I don't really think is the case in a lot of a lot of examples. And you get this in Far from the Madding Crowd. You have the you you get the impression that when she meets Francis Troy, this is kind of an outlet for her kind of pent up lust, and it's a way of kind of for, for that escaping. And I would say that the character of Troy and it, I think in particular his character, not Sturridge's performance, which I have read people, some people kind of been quite disparaging of, but I, I think it is one of the film's weaker elements, in fact. I think um, it's, I think too much, too little attention has been paid in the adaption process to him and his relationship um, that will eventually lead to room with Fanny Robin, because we're kind of led to believe that this is kind of you know, the love of his life. And... We don't see them enough together, I think, to really kind of feel that their love is genuine. And he only says this, he only says this to kind of Bathsheba later on in the film. And you see that him and Fanny were due to marry and something happens and it, it doesn't quite come about. But I didn't really ever kind of buy the fact that, that that was the love of his life. And I didn't quite understand the circumstances by the fact that why they didn't get married. It, I, you, you're shown it, but it doesn't really explain how the kind of the, the mishap has actually come about, and I, I never really bought it. But I think it's an issue with the film. And I think it probably comes down to the fact that this is looking at a kind of two-hour running time, and it's a very economical script. And perhaps I think it did hinder in some ways um, the film's dramatic and emotional impact, in the, especially when it related to the Troy story. 
and it, it has become a recurring theme for me, I think, when I go to cinema. I often feel that character and character development are clearly sacrificed in the name of running time. And it's a pity as sometimes I think we need kind of less set pieces and well, no, so, so sometimes we, we, we find ourselves talking about kind of set pieces and not so much about amazing character moments. Um, all you need to do is look at um, Empire Strikes Back and you have those wonderful set pieces, but the, the scenes that always stand out for me, you know, Han being frozen and those bits with Yoda and Luke, and then the kind of, I think, the real kind of meat of that story. And I, I, I kind of, I, I keep trying to think of the last time when I went to the cinema and watched a film where a, a character moment really, really grabbed me. Perhaps it happened in Boyhood, I think. Um, and uh, but they, they seem to be fewer and far between, as it were. Now, the, the, I think the, the film's standout sequence, though, in Far From Minecraft, is a pure character moment um, when it comes when Troy tries to impress Bathsheba with a display of swordsmanship, if you pardon the pun. This is a literal display of swordsmanship. And Vince Bear shoots the scene like something out of a fairy tale, and Troy is in his pristine red tunic and perfectly trimmed moustache and he makes for an enticing intoxicating sign and Bathsheba simply cannot resist him and as the sun shines through the trees and you kind of see the kind of the light being diffused through smoke the sexual tension in this scene is actually palpable and I felt a genuine sense of sexual chemistry in the air during this moment and it, it, it kind of shows Troy as a kind of brash arrogant chancer but, and but this film, this scene, I think, exemplified his superficial appeal to Bathsheba, and you can't really blame her f for being attracted to him. And the reveal at the end of the scene that the sword is in fact razor sharp. Um, I think it was, although not a revelation, I still think it made for a kind of a powerful eroticism and sense that Troy was part of an inner sexual desire that she had been harboring for quite some time, and. She, she kind of appears to be immune to the charms of men in a way, yet when her attraction towards him manifests itself in such an obvious sexual way, I think it highlights the fact that, you know, she clearly, you know, further highlights the fact that really that she is kind of beyond this time and place and she belongs in a kind of far more modern female-centric world. And, you know, she doesn't really interested in a piano and a larger state. What she, you know, indeed also the kind of the rank, the fact that you know, he is only a sergeant, you know, this doesn't really kind of bother her so much. It is more kind of a, an animal kind of primal attraction that she has to him. But the folly of the decision to go with Troy is clear for us to see. And indeed, she even realises fairly on him. And as the events begin to kind of tumble out of control, I never felt we were seeing Bathsheba as kind of being stupid character or someone we could judge harshly. Moreover, she just made some poor errors and was able to kind of recognize the course of this and again she becomes trapped in the kind of the social etiquette of the time she can't divorce and there's a genuine sense of melancholy which prevails in this film and Gable who is ever loyal he, he doesn't say a word really or or kind of judge her too harshly he just kind of tries to stay at her side working on a farm and you have this as well, the kind of the sad kind of fantasy Boulderwood is kind of trapped himself in. Um, and, and it's such a small thing that she's done in sending him this car, but it's obviously played emotional havoc with him. And again, it's that kind of, you know, in a way you, you could you could judge her for doing that or you could look at her or kind of say that she's behaved immorally, but she hasn't really. She's just done this thing as a kind of a, you know, for a bit of fun. And it's obviously backfired tragically for this guy. And... I was never inclined to dislike Bathsheba and the, the manifestation of malattraction in the film, I think, 
makes it hard really for you to kind of judge her too harshly on the basis of the fact that there, there doesn't quite seem to be anyone who cares about her in a really kind of normal way and obviously Gable does get there I mean it's not a spoiler to say that but it, it just seems that these guys you know they seem to be kind of too full-on with her and you, you can understand why she'd want to kind of keep them at arm's length or as in the case of Troy go with someone who represents something kind of sexually more alluring and a little bit more dangerous but what I found with Fast and the Crowd was that it was a genuinely romantic experience and bathed in the kind of soft autumnal glow England hasn't looked this stunning cinematically in a long time and I I, I, I won't lie, I, I kind of grew nostalgic for my former kind of life when I used to live down in the country and uh, there's a, a kind of mental trap of kind of over-romanticising and the kind of rolling fields and those endless summer's nights but I, I found myself kind of retreating into some kind of memories of my life down there which might not even be necessarily true but I think the film was kind of evoking a kind of quite intoxicating experience for me Sadly, I rather think Mulligan will be overlooked in the Oscar department for this film, but in my opinion, this is her finest performance to date, and you can always root for Bathsheba in this film, and you want her to live a happy life in this film, and Hardy's world might be a little more cynical um, in its literary form, in literary form, perhaps, and I think what Vinterberg does done such a fine job here is translating this world onto the big screen, and by no means is this a definitive version of Far From the Murdering Crown, but it's a worthy attempt, and at times, excellent film that breeze by and I think has an infectious charm about it and a heady mixture of frankly stunning imagery I think that this is a real kind of win-win and I I, I um, kind of urge people I, I, it doesn't seem to have done that well at the cinema but I would definitely recommend when it kind of comes out on blu-ray I think it will look stunning and I think will be a nice compliment on a Sunday afternoon my world is fire and blood Everything is dependent on oil. Yeah, killing for gasoline. Water. Water. Now there's the water. Now there's the water. Here they come again. Everybody's gone out of their mind. Out here, everything hurts. You want to get through this? Do as I say. Now pick up what you can and run.
Okay, so it was bound to happen that a film would come along that seemed a little bit better than the other dross that kind of normally pollutes the multiplex and the world goes mental. Now, yes, I've been excited for this film for a long time and yes, I indeed really did enjoy the trailers. I even went back and watched the originals and thoroughly enjoyed them all over again. Now, I don't really think it's particularly necessary for me to really talk kind of like storyline and plot and kind of that thing as kind of an introduction to how I felt about kind of Mad Max Fury Road because really I think this is another example where I went into this film really kind of not knowing a great deal about it other than you know, what I saw in the trailers and I kind of tried to avoid the kind of the internet hyperbole that was breaking out but it, it was virtually impossible really kind of seeing people kind of declaring it the greatest film ever made and 10 out of 10 and it's the best this and it's the best that and you know the ridiculous articles that I've been reading as well, how, you know, this really should be the kind of the the end of cinema, as it were, and it just shows in every single filmmaker how, how to make a proper film. It's absolute nonsense, um, all of it, really. I, I don't... I, again, I, I find it very hard to engage in those types of conversations in a way which I personally find interesting. I just get so bored of the kind of the toing and froing. And again, you know, I, I was reading... Um, one Facebook group and it just descended into kind of petty insults and kind of stupid kind of comments here and forth and it, it, I, I, I just have no interest in, in kind of um, getting involved in, in, that, in that type of debate I don't, I don't think it's, it's healthy for anyone and certainly you, you do kind of run the risk of you know of, of appearing slightly kind of film snobbish because you know Mad Max Fury Road to, to say this film is, is you know, it's, it, that Miller's the greatest kind of living director and that you know, other directors should just give up now. It's, it's just absolute trash. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a ridiculous statement that it, to, to kind of enter into a debate with someone on that issue, you, you, you're not going to get anything worthwhile out of it. I, I don't think. And I, and I have deliberately made a point of avoiding kind of writing anything down about this film. I thought I'd let this kind of episode do the talking. And I'm assuming that everyone has seen Mad Max now, so. Or, or, or well, if you haven't and you've seen the original Mad Maxes, um, you, you probably know the story. And I think I want to kind of address one very pertinent issue that I found with with Mad Max Fury Road because a lot has been made of the fact that this is a this film harkens back to yeah yeah this film it was real and it had real stunts in it and indeed um, the evidence suggests that a lot of the you know this was was a film involving a lot of stunt work. But let's just get one thing straight because this film wasn't marketed as being kind of no cgi and i don't recall i haven't seen anything with the filmmakers to say that you know they weren't kind of gonna they were they were gonna do all live action and cgi wasn't gonna look in i don't think they no, no one's made that statement other than it seems that every person who's gone to see the film but i just want to address the, the, the issue and this kind of misconception about Mal max because this film is full of wall-to-wall cgi and yes there are stunts which are combined seamlessly with cgi but there isn't a frame that goes by in it without some kind of special effect. It's, I, I, I mean, I, I, as I was watching it, I, I, the, the thing I thought was, this is Pirates of the Caribbean set on a desert with cars. It is, and I'm not complaining about this because it does look amazing for sure. Um, let's be clear on that matter. I, 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 
I, I think the film looked fabulous. Um, it had a, a really amazing kind of aesthetic to it, but this isn't the second coming of live action for cinema. And it's dangerous to even think like that, I, I, I believe. I mean, if you want to go and watch a film with, with you know, no CGI, go and watch Winter Sleep. You know, films without CGI are made every single day. And the idea that this is kind of, you know, this is going back to old school filmmaking, I, I think it's absolutely, it, it, firstly, it's wrong. And secondly, it's, it's so obviously not. You know, it, it's a film that, from a conceptual point of view, this film could have only been made in the CGI era. You could, you simply could not design a film and plan a film like this without massive amounts of computer-generated effects. So, I, I, I think this is. We need to kind of let's rethink. I think, I think this kind of attitude we have towards CGI as being a kind of a, a bad thing because. I mean, like it or loathe it, loathe it special effects are a vital cog in mainstream cinema. And, I'm actually kind of a huge fan of them. You know, they, they help take us to, to different planets. They kind of destroy worlds. They show me characters doing incredible superhuman feats. And I, you know, I, I think the idea is it should always complement and never dominate. And, and when it kind of dominates, that's when we kind of have kind of vapid, boring films. And obviously, you know, in lieu of great character and story, you, you, you can go to the cinema and you're going to have a cinematic experience that's going to be just a kind of overload of visual nonsense and then yeah there are there are, there are exceptions to, of, of course cloud atlas you know world war z gravity interstellar these are all big budget cgi films but i, I think it's you know in all of those uh, those examples i've given really but, but i guess probably with the exception of interstellar i suppose to an extent uh, the my main focus was the people in them and i never felt that i was kind of being visually overloaded i just felt that that the, the effects there were kind of complementing what was going on, which is exactly what I'm saying. It should be the way. Now, I think it, this is kind of really where my issue with Mad Max Fury, Fury Road lies, because firstly, let's just talk about kind of Max himself. And this is not a character of sorts. He is really more of a great grunting automaton um, with, I guess, a kind of, that he he doesn't tend to like the baddies because they've been mean to him. But you know, Tom Hardy, who's an actor I really, I really like, I mean, he's personality-wise, he's completely non-existent um, in this film. And backstory is insinuated, and therefore kind of some kind of implied motivation. We keep seeing black um, flashbacks of a child being killed, which we assume is his. I don't know. I mean, okay, you know, yeah, you know, that's fine. I'm, I'm I'm quite happy with that. But this doesn't alone make you care about Max and. I think I, I kind of, I was cheering kind of Mad Max on more as a kind of fact because I like him in, in the previous films, I, I think rather as opposed to um, you know, actually liking him in there. I think there was a kind of uh, residue Mad Max love that was coming through. But um, I, I kind of, this kind of bothered me, I have to say, um, when I was watching the film because in those original films you know why he's pissed off you know you, you you have that sense of rage that kind of those mental scars and he you, know, you see him he's a lover and a father and you know, he's, he's a he's a good guy in kind of evil times and all of this is kind of implied for his moments and never once did i really feel that tom hardy's mad max had any kind of depth to him at all um possibly you don't need depth in a film like this i, I i'm not sure but i just didn't really kind of feel that i was kind of particularly moved by him at all, and I suppose this can be the other issue I had with was the actual kind of story um, itself, because I think we've seen kind of obviously Thunderdome is what happens when you slow things down 
and you get away from, uh, I guess it's just the, the car chase logic and you know, like it all over. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Mad Max and Beyond Thunderdome. I have to say, I, I think it kind of is quite dull film actually in many regards. But you know, I, I, from Fury Road, we wanted Mad Max in kind of car chases, but. Um, I sort of found myself really finding the kind of the central storyline to the film not not really particularly engaging. I mean, it was it was it was more there as an excuse to have a car chase, and I, I sort of became consciously aware as I was watching Fury Road that I like this film when it's called The Road Warrior, and I like that one a lot better. And this is Mad Max very much being made for a modern mainstream audience. And the previous films were exploitation films. These were kind of late night grindhouse kind of crowd they were playing to. And I feel this kind of, this is more for the multiplex generation and it kind of goes to that crowd and you have kind of like the huge Vista shots, this kind of post-metal soundtrack and this kind of kinetic, outright mental editing styles. And I'm still not entirely convinced um, whether or not the projector I was watching it was suffering some sort of, it was digital projection, but I'm not convinced if it was suffering from some kind of stuttering issue because the amount of overcranking that I saw in this film, but just when characters like look turning their heads or something like that, I, I wasn't entirely sure whether it was a glitch on the projection or it was the actual film itself. If it was the actual, it was shot like that, it, it was beginning to really kind of annoying me at times I just felt this film had it was like a cinematic version of a tick and I just kind of kept having this and it I guess on, on paper it might look like this kind of like slightly more hardcore than its contemporaries I mean we have these kind of like watered down die hard films now don't we and you know, what we really want is a kind of really kind of hard 18 die hard film which we you know we're not going to get and this does feel like it's kind of catering for a more um violent and you know kind of the the ratings be damned kind of crowd but still um i i kind of felt myself beginning to tire of the film and this this isn't to say that i didn't enjoy fury road quite a lot and the highlight for me was the excellent charlie theron theron who's emulating a kind of ripley-esque look and he really gives a towering performance um she's inhibiting the role of a male action hero she does it brilliantly i think and uh She's infinitely more interesting and infinitely more um, watchable than Max, and I think Pop's one of the issues that might have been is calling it a Mad Max film in the first place. I think it would have worked just fine with just her. Um, I don't think a lot of audiences would have agreed with that. I certainly think it would have harmed the film box office. But I was kind of wondering, you know, did we even have to call this Mad Max at all? Could we just kind of had another character taking place in the universe of Mad Max? And there's been all kinds of fan theories going on. Yeah, this is kind of like he's the kid out of the road warrior or something like that. I don't know. I mean, theoretically, he could just be some, you know, another guy, and you don't know. I mean, I, I just felt um, as a, you know, I guess that's my kind of like wish, wish fulfillment really for, for, for the film. But I, I think it's a testament really in this film in how much it's such a loud, um, crazy kinetic film that her performance manages to come through all of that and against all kind of the, the noise and the chaos. Um, you get actually a sense that she is a character who has some motivation and a goal and ultimately a plan that doesn't simply consist of surviving the next car chase. The other film triumph for the film I find was its design and I, I really got a sense that this is a world of kind of cults and deranged societies and each one had its kind of own unique identity and character and I love the fact you get a real fe feeling that kind of like there's been this kind of apocalypse and things have leveled out and yet you've now got this kind of world in which 
you know, sort of mythologies have kind of grown up with certain groups and it's kind of settled into a kind of equilibrium and be it a very dysfunctional one, of course. And I, I, I think the film does have um, kind of modern day relevancy. You, you need only look at what's kind of going on in Syria and Iraq and the kind of in the absence of order, you know, what rises from the ashes. You know, we have Islamic State, which is essentially a death cult trying to actively bring about an apocalypse and their, their acts of brutality and medieval in their extremities but and it's quite telling of how brutal a species we can be when left to our own devices and in Fury Road you have this kind of control that's being exercised through a kind of a cult of worships and humans crave order and I think no matter how barbaric those are in command are and you certainly get that feel in this and of course the film offers plenty of visceral thrills it delivers these in abundance indeed i can't deny at times i was gripping the chair in excitement so i seem to actually recall ducking at one stage when something was going on and you know it feels like it has a wafer thin plot and when, when when there's so little kind of going on really in the, well i suppose plot wise when there's so little going on but so much action going around and it's being done so well you could say yeah, that that's exactly what this film is trying to do i think i don't think it's trying to be tolstoy or anything like that and it does do what it's set out to do incredibly well i can't deny it that this is an amazing f film to watch and to look at but i began to tire of it um i think it headed towards a conclusion which i was both kind of unsatisfied and ultimately found a little bit daft to be honest with you and as much as I enjoyed Fury Road, it was for me an entirely forgettable experience, I have to be brutally honest. I don't see myself returning to it anytime soon, N nor do I feel like I've witnessed some kind of modern classic. And yes, it is wonderfully made, and the action is superbly filmed, and indeed, despite its CGI trappings, that there's some there's some brilliantly real and scary looking explosions in it, and you, know, you, you wonder how anyone managed to kind of come through this film unscathed. I wonder if there were a few broken bones lurking around there, but Miller does indeed show us a younger Jennifer Interactions a lesson in how to shoot and edit a film. Yet ultimately, I would have been happier if this film had been made in exactly the same kind of vein as what had gone before. I wanted a, a real Mad Max film. You know, I just wanted those insane car chases, which them on their own, um, they're, they're so amazing. Go back and watch The Road Warrior again, as I have recently. You, know, you don't need massive kind of huge mountains with kind of forests growing on them and massive uh dust storms and whatnot to kind of get thrills I, they're there anywhere in, in, in that film and uh, i i felt like fury road had kind of a video game logic to it with kind of each level adding a new element of danger and kind of an end of level baddie that needs to be def defeated and by the end of it i was i was ready to leave i have to be brutally honest with you and i'm not entirely sure if this is the type of I'm the type of person this film is aimed at. Um, yes, it's an incredible spectacle, um, but this is no second coming of cinema. This won't change anything in the grand scheme of things, and, and nor should it. It's, it's neither original or indeed particularly groundbreaking, I don't think. It's just good, which in the age of internet hyperbole, cult worshipping, has to be the greatest. And, you know, to say this is the kind of the most faultless piece of a film of cinema ever committed to celluloid it's ridiculous and like all good cults i think in time the kind of the folly of the blind worship that's being given to this film will will be seen for what it is which is just a, a kind of a, a flash in the pan which is what 
I guess I am coming across quite negative, but I, I just feel this is kind of a good blip, I suppose, for film. But ultimately, I found Fury Road to be much of the muchness, and quite frankly, I have seen better from Miller himself. Okay, so sticking with a kind of car theme, I decided to go with the recent Blu-ray re-release of Steven Spielberg's Duel. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Steven Spielberg's output in recent years. I mean, save for Munich, which I can be either one of the finest films um, that I've seen in quite a long time, but I, I think that he has kind of fallen victim really to his own sense of mawkish sentimentality, and I often struggle to get through um, his, his recent output, I have to say, but um, once there was a time, uh, a Steven Spielberg who I think made really quite incredible popcorn entertainment films and I think the genesis of this kind of directorial talent is seen in Duel, which is, I'm not sure if it's his first theatrical, I know it was released theatrically in Europe, I'm not sure if it was in America, I think it was a TV movie in America, but such was its quality, it got a, a theatrical release in Europe, but Duel really is a masterpiece of simplicity and um, it's very easy to think you could come up with a film like Duel overnight given given the fact that it essentially consists of a man being chased by a truck but i think that that's kind of the genius of it i suppose is the fact that it's it's so basic and seemingly so banal that it's really kind of quite a kind of complex film and you, you really have this kind of an idea that a man is overtakes a lorry and the lorry driver tries to kill him i mean that that is how simple the plot synopsis of duel is but I would contest I think there's a little bit more to meet CI going on in this film. And all you've got to look is really that kind of Dennis Weaver who plays the titular Mr. Man, the character in the film. Um, with his pristine white shirt and you know nothing kind of special car. And he's just an average Joe to say the least. And you might be inclined to look at him and think of him as some, a little bit of a nerd or kind of like a weed. And I think the issue here is that we're seeing someone who is actually quite familiar and that person is for all intents and purposes us you know th let's be honest we are kind of weeds and nerds too you know think of this when was the last time you actually had a fight you know, think of think of the time you actually had to you were involved in a situation that was even remotely dangerous and i dare say the truth is that you you either haven't experienced these types of circumstances or the times they have are so rare you could count them on one hand and it's it often you hear people saying that, you know, if someone broke into the house, they'd go downstairs and kick the shit out of them, whatever. But in reality, I, I think that it would be a lot different to that. We'd probably be absolutely petrified. And I think you have to kind of look at Hollywood and its kind of perception of masculinity. Take it from like Die Hard, for example. You know, we like to see heroes. We like to see men behaving in an alpha male type way. And... What I think Duel does is it explores masculinity as a survival instinct and one that instantly places someone in a very world foreign, in a world that's very foreign to them and utterly terrifying. And that is completely removed from the traditional Hollywood view of how we perceive masculinity. And I think a key scene really in this film that kind of describe, I think, I think that really kind of, I think emphasizes how masculinity isn't so much a subtext, but is actually the main kind of text of this film is that when 
the Dennis Weaver character, or Mr. Man, we'll call him, rings home to his wife, and we see that she kind of lives in a kind of very middle-class suburban home. It's me. What's the matter? Did you have an accident? No, 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 it was nothing like that. Well, what happened? <laughs> well, nothing happened. I just, uh, uh, well, I, I just wanted to, uh, to apologize. You don't have to apologize. When I left the house this morning, you were asleep, so I just wanted to call you up and tell you that uh, I, uh, I'm sorry about last night. Oh, I really don't even want to talk about it. Well, don't you think maybe we ought to? No, because if we talk about it, we'll just get into a fight, and you wouldn't want that, would you? Of course not. Well, what is, what is that supposed to mean? Oh, never mind. Hey, just a minute. No, I, I know I know what it's supposed to mean. I mean it means that you, you think that I should should go out and, and, and call Steve Henderson up and, and challenge him to a fist fight or something. No, of course not. But I mean I think you could have at least said something to the man last night. I mean, after all, he's practically trying to rape me in front of that whole party. Oh, come on, honey. Just forget it. You gonna be home by six thirty? If Forbes lets me go in time. Well, is it that important that you see him? Well, he's leaving for Hawaii in the morning. The way he's been griping to the front office, if I don't reach him today, I, I could lose the account. You said there would be no problem about getting home on time. There probably won't be. Sure, Mother. God knows she's not coming to see me. Honey, I said there probably won't be a problem. Well, just be on time, okay? All right. Okay, I'll be there. I suppose it's tempted to say that the scene kind of falls prey to the kind of the stereotypical nagging wife, but she divulges some very important information, which I think is crucial to how we look at the film, and it's how he has appeared to have failed to intervene um, the previous night, where she talks about someone who practically raped her, and he's actually done now done nothing to stop this. Now we don't know the kind of the details of this or or whatever, but aside from the rather clunky dialogue, I think. Which we can kind of really suggest it comes back down to the fact that the film has kind of quite a pulpy B-movie film and I can without any hesitation get over it quite quickly. Um, it's a, it's a, that man has some serious issues in the masculinity department. He has allowed his wife to be violated and clearly avoids confrontations. And in a way it reminded me of 310 to Yuma, um, which is a film and another great film about men having to live up to a view of what masculinity is and especially a film, a, a cinematic form of masculinity and this scene exists in the film only to convey this information that he has not come to the aid of his wife and has failed in his obligation to to to, to be her husband and the film would in a sense um function without this scene you don't necessarily i think its exact purpose is there to tell us that this is, is so much a film about male behavior and In a way, I think it's kind of like almost a wish fulfillment thing. You know, we, most screenwriters and directors are male, and I think that the perception and how men are portrayed in films kind of comes down to kind of almost like a wish fulfillment on the part of our gender because we, you know, we, we want to be heroic and we want to be brave and we want to be chivalrous, but in reality, that, that isn't the case. And I think that it's one of the genius parts of, of Jewel, I suppose, is that he, this isn't a typical Hollywood action hero. and 
I think there is an almost kind of like Twilight Zone um, feel to the to the film, which given Richard Matheson's involvement, I mean, this is someone who kind of you know, um, certainly kind of contributed a lot to that series. I don't think it's 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 completely unrealistic to make that comparison in this idea of kind of sucking a normal person into a completely terrifying world. And there's another moment I think as well where kind of man's in this bar trying to work out who the driver of the truck might be. And this isn't the person whose first instinct is violence. He's more, um, he, he's more about conflict avoidance and indecision and inner doubt. And there is a clear sense of panic um, that's beginning to take over his character. And in a way, this, we don't we don't see this very often. You know, he, what he should be doing is kind of going up to these guys and kind of beating them up. But he doesn't. He's so racked with kind of fear, I suppose, that he's almost rendered. Um, incapable of addressing the issue at hand and in a way I, I completely identify with that why wouldn't you be scared why wouldn't you be completely baffled and um, frightened as to what is going on and I think what makes Jewel even more scary is rather arbitrary nature about how he's found himself in this predicament you can insert any reason or kind of metaphor you want into the truck but it, it just seems like a force of nature he's just simply been at the wrong place at the wrong time and there is a real sense that this terror is out there and it's simply awaiting its next victim and i think there's something very kind of otherworldly about jewel and i think what you find with man is gets completely cut off from civilization and what we perceive as being um the real world there is no law no one wants to help him and he, no matter how far he drives, he never seems to end to, to come back to civilization. Indeed, as the film progresses, confrontation is inevitable and unavoidable. And it's terrifying conceit that normally this is something a, a hero embraces. He, he, he craves it even. And here, we're under no illusion. He's forced into taking the events to confront the truck after exhausting every attempt at reasoning with it. And... What's kind of strange about the, about the kind of truck that's pursuing him is that we, we do see the driver. We, we don't ever see him by face, but we see his hand and we see him in the truck. But this, this is, seems to be some kind of a monster vehicle um, which kind of been driven out of complete malice. And you can't really explain why it's doing it. And f for the film's credit, it doesn't do it. And ambiguity in such instances can be one of the most appealing and I think brilliant screenwriting devices in cinema because it allows you to fill in the gaps. It allows you to kind of let your mind wander and have fun and kind of speculate as to what is going on. That's infinitely more terrifying. And I think for a debut, this is a fine piece of work from Spielberg. And having not seen it in ages, I think it reminded me of how, just how good a director he is when, when he works with more simplistic plots. He is... You know, I, I, there are obviously some exceptions to that case. I mean, obviously, I've talked about Munich. I think Schindler's List is, I, I maintain, is one of the greatest films ever made. But I think sometimes with Spielberg, I get the impression his primary talents lie in the thrills department, of which Jewel contains many. The use of sound is so jarring in this film. Um, I, I, I jumped out of my seat a number of occasions, especially when man is asleep in the railway um, and then the train goes past and you suddenly hear that kind of noise. And I know this is something he kind of, Spielberg has taken from David Lean and kind of using noise as a rather jarring effect and you know, watch films like Dr. Zhivago it does happen a lot in that but what I like too is the fact that the film is shot and edited to perfection it's 
The pacing of it is completely perfect. It takes time to breathe at the right moments and adds attention by simply making you wait for the carnage which is about to unfold. I think it's clearly Spielberg is a director who understands that films don't need to be smashing you over the head repeatedly to elicit a response from you. And as Jewel works towards its conclusion, you're not left with an overriding sense that you know, man has necessarily won this duel. Yes, the truck um, loses, so to speak, but there's no triumph, no rousing finale to cheer about. And it reminds me in a way of kind of Shakespeare's The Tempest, or indeed its remake in the filmic sense, The Forbidden Planet. And you know, the truck with all its rust and its menace various and various number plates belongs to nowhere in particular. And perhaps it is a manifestation of man's inner fears, some kind of hideous creation from his id, or it's just some psychopath who he happened to cross at the wrong time. Either way, I think Jewel is a deeply unsettling experience. Yes, the dialogue is a little bit clunky, but I think as an exercise in suspense, it's quite masterful. Now, the Blu-ray itself, I think, um, looks quite brilliant. It's been reframed from a 133 ratio to 16.9, and I didn't really notice much information missing from the frame. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure what the correct ratio would be, because I think probably if it was going to be going to um, projected as it was it would have probably come out in the 16.9 frame but either way I think it looks great I have the DVD as well and I, I, I certainly think the Blu-ray is the best presentation I've seen in the film equally though I think that the surround sound mix on this is, is so immersive and really engaging it's a 5.1 mix and DTA, DTS HD sounded absolutely incredible and I think well, I viewed it on my projector and it was a genuinely cinematic experience and I think this is it's a film which I can really recommend picking up. I, 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 I certainly think it's one of Spielberg's best, and I'm certainly incredibly pleased that it's actually you know, found its way onto Blu-ray. Okay, so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames Cast. If you want more, head over to the 24 Frames Cast or blogspot.com. You can also hear me on my other podcast, which is the Master of Cinema Cast that I do with Joachim. You can find us over at criterioncast.com or mocast.blogspot.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can find me on Facebook. My I'm the Thomas Jennings with the black and white picture of two people dancing from eight and a half. Do befriend me and drop me a line. It's always nice to hear from people. You can email me at 24Framescast at gmail. Um, so I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back very soon with another episode and many thanks for listening. Bye.